I was sliding down the rock and in a free fall. Dog lovers, thanks for coming back to Rescued by a Dog, the podcast about dogs who have actually saved their owners' lives. This week, I'm re-releasing last season's final episode about Danelle, who fell off a cliff, and when she did, her dog Taz wouldn't leave her side until she told him to. The reason I'm re-releasing the episode is that we have a lot more listeners this season, and I don't want anyone to miss this unbelievably compelling, inspiring, and hopeful episode. I first heard Danelle tell this story 10 years ago in a documentary, and then a few years later, I wrote a novel called Not Just a Dog, a survival story about a woman who gets lost in a Costa Rican jungle where she meets a stray dog. The novel is about the bond that grows between the young woman and the dog as they struggle to find a way out of the jungle. And a few scenes in the novel were directly inspired by Danelle's incredible story. In homage to this story that inspired my novel, the first five people who DM me on my Insta or TikTok at Podcast Rescued by a Dog will receive a free copy of my novel, Not Just a Dog. Now, please enjoy this unbelievable story. Maybe you're on. Hi. Yeah. Okay. I think I got it figured out. You did. Hi, Danelle. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Am I saying it right, Danelle? Yes. That's it. That's perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. I'm excited too. Where are you? Where am I talking to you from? Uh, I'm at home in Moab. Moab still. Okay. That's where I remember you were in your episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive, which I saw, what, a decade ago? And I haven't yeah. stopped thinking about it since. Yeah. Yeah. Same same house. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So let's talk about your dog. So why don't you start by telling me what, what was your dog's name and what did he look like? Okay. My dog's name was Taz and he... He looks a little bit like a big fox. He was kind of golden color, except for he had floppy ears that made him look more like a dog. Um, he was about 80 pounds, big dog. And uh, he was like uh, uh, as mutt as you can get mutt. I have no idea what breeds um, he was. We know that he had some Australian shepherd in him, mm -hmm. which is part of the why he got the name Taz or Tasman. Um, oh, cool. So how did you meet Taz? Yeah, at the time I was, I was ready to have a dog. I hadn't had a dog since I was young in childhood at my, our family dogs. And I really wanted to get a dog again. And so I'd heard about this puppy rescue in Brighton, Colorado. And so, um, decided to go down there and just check it out. And of course there was a whole bunch of adorable puppies there. And, um, so I was kind of looking around at the puppies and this one puppy caught my eye and um, I kind of had felt like directed towards this puppy. And so I was petting him and playing with them. And then I thought, well, I better look at the other puppies. So as I'm looking at the other puppies, somebody came up to that puppy and was holding that puppy, which was Taz. <laughs> and I remember just staring at this lady going, oh, no, she's going <laughs> to take my puppy. And it was right then, like, I knew that this was the dog. This was my dog. Like, there was something about this little puppy at, right at, when I first saw him that was that I felt like he was my dog. 
So eventually I'm just staring at this lady kind of from a distance, just watching her. And finally she set Taz down and I went over there and grabbed him. And I said, I'll take this one. (laughs) And that's how I got Taz. And I look back on it now and I was like, yeah, somehow, somehow we knew somehow Taz knew somehow I knew that we needed to be together. Um, How old was he? He was only five weeks old. What they said was that he, they, they got a call on the puppies, the rescue place, got a call on the puppies. And I guess, um, the, where it was a, a farm, it was like a farm and the farm mom dog had the puppies and the owners of the mom and the puppies said, you need to take these dogs now or we're going to, I guess, get rid of them. And so, uh, so they went and got him then because just to save the puppies. Right. And so he was, yeah. And there was some concern and, you know, I was a little bit concerned because that is too early to be taken away from, you know, your mom. Um, but he, Taz was healthy. I mean, he was a healthy dog. I never had any problems with them. And, uh, and it was actually great. I mean, that may have helped bond because I sort of became his his mom right away. Yeah, you would have. Okay, so uh, first of all, what year was this happening? It, um, so let's see. It was 2006 was my accident. So he and he was four. So it must have been 2002. Okay. And what was happening? What was your life like at the time when you met Taz? What was going on with you? Um, so I was, um, I was trying to make it as a professional endurance athlete and I competed in several of the Ironman distance triathlons, which was a two and about 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then a 26 mile run, uh, all, you know, in one day. Um, but then from that, I moved into adventure racing and adventure racing adds the dynamic of using a, a map and a compass um, and a lot of off trail type uh, navigation. Um, so hiking around on foot to different checkpoints, trying to find different checkpoints and adventure racing incorporates the different disciplines of endurance sports. So there's mountain biking and kayaking, canyoneering. We even did some uh, races with scootering and rollerblading and camel riding, um, all dif- just all different kinds of endurance sports. Camel riding into one, into one race. One of the races had camel riding. It was the Eco Challenge in Morocco, and oh, uh, of course yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. It was a fun experience. Yeah. So, was the intention to have your dog do these things with you? Um. Well, I, I gotta say at the time I was young and didn't really think it through, but yes, he, yes, I wanted a dog to run with. And I knew Taz was going to be a good runner because he was like running circles from the moment I got him. Like he would nonstop running really high energy puppy. He was like the puppy that most people would be like, no way. Um, I don't want this thing. He's too energetic. I mean, he would literally like the Tasmanian devil on the cartoon. He would literally jump up, spin around and jump back down and just run through the house, jumping up and over all the furniture and the beds, just (laughs) 
almost, almost like there was something wrong with him. He was just going crazy. And uh, he could not like, I was trying to do the right thing by crate training them because that's what they say to do, you know, whoever they are. Yeah. I, I tried to train crate train him and he had nothing to do with that crate right he was just not the right dog for the crate he did not like being cooped up in a crate so I had to adapt and try to try to make it work his personality mix with my personality and we eventually got it I ended up um Deciding that it was, I was trying to save up money because it's hard to make it as an endurance athlete when you're at that age and young. So I decided that I was just going to live out of my truck and rent out my uh, little house um, to try to save money at the time. And so Taz came with me. We lived in the truck together and he came everywhere with me and he would join me on whenever I went running. Um, When I was doing my kayak training, he would you know, run along the, um, the edge of the lake. And sometimes he would come out into the water and swim and say, hi, he never had a leash. Like somehow I was able to get by at that time without a leash. And he was somehow I knew just to stay right next to me. So there was some moments when he would chase like critters and stuff like that. And, and I had to chase after him, but in general, he was pretty good about just sticking around next to me. I think where we developed an emotional bond, I had a a boyfriend at the time and we broke up and it was right after that, that Taz, um, he was like there for me. He was my comfort and support. And he knew, you know, that I was sad and that he was going to be the one to be there for me and comfort me. And, uh, that just helped develop a closer bond with him where, you know, the two of us were sort of unbreakable. Four years into you having Taz, you had an experience so extraordinary that a documentary was made about that experience. And I have, Danielle, over the whatever decade or so since I saw it, I've talked about your story so many times because, um, it it just really touched me. It really moved me. And I'm, um, I would love for you to share with me what that, what was that experience? What was it like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it is, it's one of those things. It was, so it was in, uh, 2006 of December and now it's, you know, 2022. And I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't thought about some, something, that happens during the day where I haven't thought about that experience in that day. And it definitely reminds me every day how lucky I am and how grateful I am to be here. Um, but it was uh, December 13th, 2006, and I was heading out for a training run. Moab is adjacent to the um, Colorado River. And it's where Arches and Canyonlands National Park is. So it's this little oasis of canyons and red rock, funny looking rocks, huge canyon walls, um, gigantic arches, towers. Um, So it's sort of like this extreme little town in, um, in the corner of Utah. 
Um, so this was a route that was really pretty that sort of was in an area where you get to enjoy the being up on the climb up the canyon rims and then also run through the base of the canyons. And it was a remote spot where actual there was in some of the sections, there's no trail at all. Just had to navigate um, through the terrain to get from one from one trail to another kind of through the canyons and then up to the rim. And, and it was sunny and cool um, December day. And I headed out just cruising along and I was about four miles into the run. Um, and I was going across a section of slick rock, they call it. Um, lots of people have heard of like the slick rock bike trail and the slick rock is kind of a popular place to go biking or, or hiking because it's got, it's just a neat, it's like a huge rock formation where you can actually walk over the rock, um, or ride your bike over the rock. And is the rock actually slick? Um, it's actually quite grippy. Um, I, if it's wet, it's slippery. The conditions were perfectly wrong on that day. And there had been just a frost the night before and a little bit of rain and it had froze a thin layer of ice on the rock and they call it like black ice. And it's not actually black ice. It's clear ice. It's where you can't, you can't see that the ice is there. It's just a thin layer of ice. And so I was coming across this section and it was a sort of a flat section of slick rock, but it had ice in it and my foot slipped. Well, the, the rock got steeper, uh, the direction I slipped and it got, it kept getting steeper and steeper and steeper. So the angle of the rock kept getting more vertical the further I slipped and eventually I was sliding down the rock and in a free fall. So, and it was six, I fell 60 feet. It was a 60 feet fall and (sighs) somehow I landed it um, by pure miracle. There was like a little patch of dirt uh, on the ledge where I landed next to a little juniper tree Um, And that's where I landed. And to the left of it and to the right of it was just rock. So I was lucky to land on the little patch of dirt because it provided perhaps a little bit of support to keep from just killing me instantly from the fall. And I made an effort to land it, having a background in like skiing where I've crashed a lot. Um, I tried to, to land it, but I just collapsed down to the ground. Yeah, so I touched each of my legs to see if I was paralyzed, and I had feeling in my legs, and I was alive. So I let, I thought to myself, okay, I'm okay. I'm going to just walk back out to my truck and, and go home or go to the doctor. Um, but then I tried to get up, and I couldn't get up. And so I was like, okay, something's happened here, uh, but I still need to get out of this canyon. And so then I started trying to crawl but I couldn't even crawl. Like I couldn't get my knees under me. Uh, I couldn't get on all fours. And so then I just started dragging myself. I said, I have to drag myself out of here. Was Taz with you this day? Yeah, Taz was with me. Um, Yeah, of course he was with me. And he didn't fall. He was actually ahead of me. He had 
made it past that section. And somehow he, I don't know if his paws were more sticky than my shoes or what, but he made it past that section. Um, eventually he made it back to me, to the spot where I was laying on the ground. Um, so he was able to backtrack. He was able to find a route down to where I was. And since Taz had actually made it, um, to, to where I was, I knew there had to have been a route out. So I knew there had to be some way to get out. So I sort of used Taz lead to try to find my way out of the spot where I fell and back onto the route at the bottom of the Canyon. And I just kept dragging myself, just determined. I mean, I was a endurance athlete and I just used that mindset of just keep going, even though I was only going a, a inch or less, you know, just kept drag myself and then get the energy, drag myself again. And I just kept going. I was not in pain. I was more in shock and, and I would, I didn't feel the pain because I was more in desperation to try to, um, to try to get out, like to try to try to survive. What was the Um, weather like? It was calm, sunny, and cold. Um, in the daytime, it probably was in the, in the high thirties or low forties. And then it got below freezing at night. Um, yeah, the water, the water in the little potholes was freezing at night. It was turning to ice. Um, so that's a danger to you also. That was the biggest risk was the hypothermia. And I knew that too at the time. So I was kind of thinking I needed to drag myself all the way out of the canyon to get out before, um, before night, before, you know, because it was so cold. And I just had like my running outfit on. I didn't have, I wasn't prepared for overnight. I just had, you know, enough clothes to wear for that particular day, for that particular run. So I kept dragging myself. I made it to the bottom of the canyon and then I kept trying to drag myself out. And I was just moving like an endurance athlete, just keeping going, but I wasn't getting very far. And I only made it like less than a quarter mile and it took me five hours. Oh, what, what was Taz doing that whole time? Like as you were inching forward? He was kind of running around back and forth. I don't even really remember because I was just in desperation at the time, but I knew he was there. I don't know if he immediately knew that something was wrong, but he may have, but he, he didn't leave me. I mean, he, he would come and go and there wasn't much he could do to help. Um, so he just kind of would check in on me. Um, and then eventually I got to a section where I had to go uphill before I could continue going down the canyon and I couldn't make it up the hill. Like my body just as much as I tried, I just couldn't get up the hill. And there happened to be a little pothole at this spot and with some water in it. And so I made the decision that I would just stay there for the night. And then I would hopefully get the energy by the next morning to drag myself the rest of the way out, or that maybe somebody would, you know, possibly come. Um, and help me, even though the reality was I was in a place where nobody came, especially that time of year. It was pretty remote out there. 
Um, but I stayed the night, um, and Taz stayed next to me. Um, he, he didn't really like the spot where I was. It was kind of a cold rock. He would try to keep me warm and put his little paws on me, but I had, I didn't know it at the time, but I had broken my pelvis, shattered it. So it almost was painful. The more he tried to comfort me just because it would move those bones around, but he would come and check on me and it was nice having him there, just having somebody else there instead of being completely alone at night. Did you have any internal injuries or anything like that? Well, there was uh, uh, also my back. Some of the vertebrae, those lower vertebrae were broken. And the, yeah, the pelvis was shattered, but no, no internal like damage to the organs. Um, but there was internal bleeding. And it was a lot. I mean, by the second day, I felt like I had this, uh, you could actually see it and feel it. It was this like jelly roll that was uh, forming around my midduction. And it was blood. It was pooled blood that had come, you know, that had, I had bled out. Um, I didn't really know at the time what it was or at how, how risky it was. I mean, most people die when they lose that much blood. And I think the fact that the rock was so cold that I was laying on, I think that helped slow down the bleeding process a little bit. So how did you not freeze during the night? How did you stay alive? Yeah. So I did like little head crunches to stay warm. I tried kind of tapping. I was able to to tap my toes together, do a little, some little heel taps. Um, and then, you know, I kind of just tucked my arms in, but I would just sort of flex my arms toward my body, just trying to do whatever I could to keep myself warm. But the head crunches sort of engaged enough of the muscle that it, it helped keep the blood flowing, I guess, enough to keep me warm. I knew if I fell asleep that I wouldn't make it. Um, but then I would start to get tired after, you know, several hours of doing it. So then I had to find a pace where I could keep doing the the little crunches and not get tired, but do enough of them to keep warm. So I just kind of focused on trying to find the right pace and, and just, I mean, just doing what I could to stay alive. I, it helped to have Taz there. I was, so I wasn't scared of like, um, you know, like uh, critters, um, or the dark. I was more just, um, just frust, just more this, just emotions of like frustrated and angry that, that it happened to me and that I couldn't get out and then sad. Um, and then, and then just more and more sad as time went on. And, you know, I was calling for help. I was hopeful for a long time that somebody would come and get me. And then, you know, after hollering help for so many hours and nobody coming, and then I started to get really sad. Like then it hit that, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die. The first day I thought I could maybe like get somehow I thought overnight I would get the energy back and heal up up enough that I could drag myself out. 
And that was what I was thinking at the time. I look back on it now and I'm like, duh, of course, like you're not going to heal up from a broke, a shattered pelvis, you know, and be able to get out of there. But that's what I was thinking at the time. So the second day I kind of was struggling trying to make, make it up that hill to keep pushing on. Um, I was trying to drink, uh, drink water out of the puddle. I had to like break through the ice and I used the little lid of my water bottle. To, to scoop up water and pour it into my mouth. Uh, um, and I would call for help. I had a watch on and I thought maybe I could signal to if a plane was overhead or something like that, which of course they couldn't see me, but I was trying everything. Um, and so I was hopeful for a lot of time. And then I kept thinking about, you know, who knows where I am, who knows that I haven't, haven't come home. You know, the last person I talked to, will they on the phone, would they recognize that I haven't, I said I would call them back and I hadn't called them back. Um, I, I was kind of hopeful. And then it was that night that I kind of started to lose hope on that and just wasn't sure what, what to do. And was just, you know, that's when the thoughts that, Hey, I might not make it out here, uh, were going through my head. And that second night I was starting to, um, lose blood. The blood loss was starting to affect me and I was having less oxygen to my brain because I was starting to be like my vision was going and I would look at the stars and they would sort of like, I would look to the right and I would see this blur of stars to the right. And I think it was just because I wasn't getting proper oxygen to my brain and it was affecting my vision was affecting my thought process. And so then I just sort of kept doing what I had been doing, which was trying to stay warm by doing the crunches and get through the night. It was, that was a hard night and it was so cold and it was just really just a sad night. And then that last day, and I had, was drinking enough water to keep me hydrated, but I was afraid that I was going to, I didn't want to go pee because then I would be wet and cold. And I, it was sometime that, that next morning that I finally peed myself. I, I had gone already gone two days without going pee and I couldn't hold it anymore. And so then I was just really losing hope. Um, and I was sort of facing the fact that I wasn't going to make it. And I was sad more than anything for my parents and my family and my friends that, you know, that they were going to have to go through, you know, a funeral for their daughter. Um, but I was trying to hang on too, like I was trying to hang on for them. Um, and I was also trying to hang on because I was still young and I knew I had things that I wanted to do in my life. Um, and I, I also wanted to hang on for Taz because I, we had this bond and I knew it would be hard for him without me. And it was that third, it was the morning this after the second night, it was that morning, that third morning on the third day, that morning that I talked to him. Cause that was my only, that was the only hope at that point was he was what I, all I had at that point to, to help me. And I was like, you thinking to myself, like reality is a dog can't do it. You know, he can't do this. Like, you know, but it was all I had. So I asked him to go, I had asked him to go get help. How did you communicate that to him? 
I just talked, I always talk to him in English. <laughs> I mean, I think he, he knows a few words, but I think he spoke English better than the average dog, or he didn't speak English. He understood it better than average. And uh, I don't know if he understood my, based on my tone of my voice, or if he understood the words, I think he understood the tone of my voice and the way I was talking, that something was wrong and that he needed to get help. But yeah, I just asked him to go get help. And I explained to him what had happened and that I need him to go help. And he just stared at me and he kind of tilted his head to the side as I was talking to him. Um, he did look at me and I just remembered seeing his eyes and seeing his and then just seeing him turn and like he was gone on this mission, like he just took off. I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. And I was kind of like, wait, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. The next thing I know is I, I had hit a low point and I was just laying there, you know, crying, thinking it was over. And he comes back wagging his tail. And he wags his tail and he comes right up to the puddle where my puddle, my only sort of lifeblood was that little puddle to keep, keep me hydrated. He starts drinking out of that puddle and then he's licking my face and wagging his tail. And I was like, just so sad because here he is, he had gone on a little adventure and he was happy and he was coming back to sort of tell me what he had done. And, uh, he was drinking out of my puddle and I didn't know it, but sure enough, he knew it. He knew somebody was coming to help me. What had he done? He had gotten help. He went down there and, um, he's running back to the, to my house, to our house, which was several miles away. And as he was running to the house, the rescue team was coming up because they had figured at this point, they had noticed my neighbor, Dorothy Rosignol, had noticed I hadn't come home. And she had contact, contacted my parents, and my parents had contacted the police. And they had located uh, my truck. And that whole, that whole process in itself was like a series of just miraculous events that happened that led them to notice that I was missing, to locate my truck and to start the search. So right as they were sort of um, gathering at my truck to start the search, Taz comes by and somebody noticed Taz and they look at him and he made eye contact and he kind of just kept making eye contact with people like, okay, is this the person that might be able to help her? No. So he keep going. Is this the person that might be able to help her? Maybe. So he kind of try again. So they had called animal control because for a while there, he was a loose dog. He was on the loose. He was, you know, a problem. But luckily the search team was intuitive to enough to know that, wait, this could be her dog. You know, does she have a dog? And one of the guys on the search said, wait, don't catch the dog. Follow the dog. Let's, let's listen to the dog. And so they did, you know, and he had radioed it to the rest of the search team. Follow the dog. If you see the dog, just follow the dog. And so uh, one of the guys on the search team started following him. And Taz must have known because he kind of kept looking back. And he said that Taz ran up the hill and he would look back and check. And the guy's name was Bago Earhart. And Bago, and I thought his name was Bagel when I first saw him because I was so hungry. But um, 
Vago would follow him. And then there was one spot where Taz made a shortcut and he had gotten a little bit ahead of Vago and Vago stopped and looked. And then he, he's got, he's one of the best uh, on the search team and he knows tracking really well. And so he got out and he saw human prints and he saw dog prints and he saw him going, uh, going, he saw the human prints going one way. And he saw the dog prints going both ways a couple times. And so he's like, okay, this could be the dog because of the way that the, the tracks were, where there was several dark dog tracks and one set of human tracks. And so he f- kept following and, um, and then Taz had gotten ahead and he had gotten to me before him. And that's why he was wagging his tail and licking me, happy to see me. And then shortly thereafter, Bago got to me and um, I had about lost consciousness then because of the blood loss, but I got like adrenaline rush and I was able to, you know, communicate. I didn't know that it was a search person or if it was just somebody out there. So I was just desperately asking for help and to try to articulate the word, I need help. I couldn't just articulate it. Like I had to think about it because I was, I was, I was deteriorating so bad and had so little oxygen to my brain that I had to think, what are the words I need help? Like, you know, I had to think about that to say it and I was able to get it out. And, um, and then, you know, I knew I was going to make it after that. I didn't realize how bad I was at the time. I mean, I didn't find out. I didn't realize it until the doctors informed me how close I was to not making it. Uh, As they were putting me into the helicopter, Taz came up behind me and I reached back my hands and, and just pet him. And um, uh, one of the guys on the search team is actually a vet. And he kind of just checked on Taz and made sure he was okay. And then Bago actually had brought with him a block of cheese and he had given me a little slice. He didn't want me to eat too much because for whatever reason, I guess if you haven't eaten in a long time, you don't want to eat too much at once. And also in case I needed to go into emergency surgery. So he gave me a little slice of cheese and he set the block of cheese down. Well, cheese, it was Taz's favorite food. <laughs> Taz got the whole block of cheese. <laughs> Good boy. He ate the big block and he ate the whole thing. Um, but then one of the other people on the search team, they brought Taz to, uh, their house and they had a dog too. And, um, they said that Taz was exhausted and he just went right to sleep. So Taz must've been awake. I don't think Taz slept that whole time either. He was exhausted after what he did. You know, he was checking on me those two nights but I don't think he slept. I think he just went out and back kind of maybe looking for help and then coming back to check on me. And it wasn't, it wasn't that he went like far from me to actually get help till, till he got permission for me to actually leave and go a long ways to get help. They had to put almost a third of my blood. I had to have a transfusion when they finally got me to the hospital. Wow. I had lost a lot of blood. I I was really, if it would have been much longer, I wouldn't have made it. They were pretty certain that I would, uh, I was going to be wheelchair bound. That's what they told me at the time. And I also 
frostbite feet and they thought that I might lose my feet to frostbite. Wow. Um, Somehow I was able to get my feet back and my doctor was amazing. He pieced together the bones um, using a plate and pins and screws and um, and got me got everything back together and so that I could I now I can walk, I could run again. Um, but I was in the hospital for uh, a couple weeks and then the Today Show uh, called and they wanted to do an interview on the Today Show. And so I, I was like, well, because you don't really want to do an interview when you're like in the, you know, hospital, like, you know, not not doing that great. And I said, well, if I see Taz, I'll do the, <laughs> do the interview. So they work things out with the hospital and somehow they talked the hospital into letting Taz into the hospital and they wheeled me down to the lobby and they had put their banner up, you know, promo banner and we're doing the today show interview. And uh, so they had Taz waiting outside and Taz came running in and he just put his little paws up on and just, you know, and I gave him as best of a hug as I could. And he just started licking my face and just, you know, crying. And <laughs> so it was really cool to see him. I know it's been like, oh my gosh, it's been like 16 years and I still can't get through the story without getting emotional. So then... And there was a funny part to it. So after the interview, they brought him to my sister's house. My sister lived in Denver at the time. And so he was staying with my sister in Denver. Well, he knew where the hospital was because they <laughs> brought him to the hospital. I guess he could smell it or something, even though they brought him to and from in a car. So he was at my sister's house. He got out of the house, jumped over the fence, took off running. And my sister and brother-in-law are panicking and they're calling for him, calling for him. He just kept running. He kept running. He kept running. And eventually they found him and he was trying to get into the hospital. So he was trying to come back to me to visit. And so eventually they were able to collect him at the hospital. They went to the hospital and put the leash on him and got him back to my sister's place. But he knew where I was. That was motivation to get out, to try to get out of the hospital. You know, I, I was determined to do whatever physical therapy or whatever I needed to do to get out of the hospital. But I probably got out of there sooner than I should because it was definitely a struggle when I got home. You know, I, I was I was still on the mend, um, but at least I got to be with Taz. When you got back with him, was he like glued to you? Was he so excited to be with you? He was calm. He just wanted to just lay down next to me. Um, so he he seemed to know that, okay, I can't go for a run right now. Like usually he was the kind of dog that's like just wanting to, like he would actually grab me by the foot and drag me out the door. Like, come on, mom, we're going for a run. Like he would actually physically take his mouth around my foot and, and pull me out the door. But this time he seemed to like, he was just totally content with just laying down next to me. 
and just being near me and being with me. And I, I think it was, it definitely felt, I felt more connected to him for sure. And more, just more grateful of, you know, of him, like, uh, you know, just, he saved my life. So, you know, I, I owed him, like, I was so grateful for him. And I don't know if it was just me and my perception of our relationship or, but I think he too knew, like, okay, I got her back, you know, like, we're going to be, we're a team and we're going to be okay. Like the two of us are going to be okay. We got, we've got each other. Can you tell me a, a particularly happy memory that you have with Taz? Um, well, I could tell you a, one, a funny memory. Um, this is when, so I used to take him kayaking and he would run along the shore and I would be out in the water. So one time we're kayaking along Lake Dillon and there's an amphitheater next to Lake Dillon. And so on this day we're kayaking along and there's like the Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm not sure if that's what it's called or not, but there's this orchestra playing this beautiful music. And so we're kayaking along and he's running along the shore well, then I see Taz, I look over shore, I see him taking off. He's heading up to the amphitheater. Like he's heading up on the stage. And I was like, oh no. And then the <laughs> next thing I know is that I start hearing this uh, sort of chatter for a second. And then I start hearing him howling and he's howling. He's singing along with the orchestra. So I like take my kayak onto shore and I'm like, what do I do? Like, I was so like embarrassed. Like I, do I go get him or do I just wait for him to come and wait for this to pass? And then I hear the whole crowd just start cracking up laughing because here's this dog that's like howling with this orchestra. And I was like, oh shoot. Like I ruined the, like they all paid money for these tickets to go to this orchestra. And then I'm hoping that he didn't destroy any of the instruments or whatever. And, uh, so then they were laughing. So I kind of just went up and called for him from a distance where maybe hopefully I was so embarrassed. I didn't want him to see me. So I kind of went and called and eventually he came down and he's kind of wagging his tail. Like, Hey mom, that was fun. <laughs> was the orchestra still playing? Uh, they resumed. They resumed. Yeah, they resumed. And we, I was like, okay. And so I just left my kayak on the shore and like walked back to the car because I had to make sure that he didn't go back on stage again. <laughs> we got back to running again and had several good years of runs together. Um, not like I used to, you know, I didn't do the long runs, but I mean, I still, uh, I still got back to taking him out every day and he just loves running. It was his favorite thing and me too. And it was like our, to, like our runs together were our chance to meditate and our chance just to really just enjoy life. He passed away. Oh, I think it's been about three or four years ago. He was 17. He lived to be 17 years old. If Taz could speak English, what would you want to say to him? Oh my gosh. 
I mean, I guess I just want to tell him that I love him and tell him thank you, you know, which is what I did tell him. I mean, I used to talk to him. I think he understood. Rescued by a Dog is produced and hosted by Laura Thomas. Music was composed by the amazing Ben Lively and artwork by the multi-talented Laura Davis from our favorite dog gear company, Major Darling.